Uh, let's dive into, into this, the text and the story this morning. Uh, when I, when I kind of think about loss and losing loved ones, um, a lot of things sort of come up for me. Um, I, I've done uh, way too many funerals, I think, already in my life and started probably way too young doing funerals. Um, my first funeral was I was still in high school. It was my grandfather passed away. It was my senior year, and everyone knew I wanted to be a pastor, and I was on staff at a church as a youth director. And um, I, re- I think I've shared before that when my grandfather died, I was in pastor mode around my grandfather's bed. And my dad looked at me, and he said, just be a kid. Now, that was well over a decade ago now, and I look back at that, and I think, my dad, that was actually good advice, even though I wasn't in a mature enough state to receive that advice from him. I just wrote my dad off, and I said, you know what you're talking about, you just don't understand my calling. <laughs> but reality was, is in that moment, what I really needed to be was just present to my own emotions and feelings, to the fact that my grandpa was passing and my grandma was in deep pain, and that, quite frankly, I was too, but I was masking it by somehow trying to be pastoral. I can also think about the many funerals that I've done for people and the ways I've been present to their different needs as folks pass on, folks who who died way too young, folks who died unexpectedly, folks who died when everyone knew it was coming, but still it hurts just as much. I've sat by the bedside of a lot of different people, and one of the kind of interesting things about pastoring is that you kind of have to hold it together with your tears. Like, you can cry a little bit, but you can't, like, ugly sob because you're, you're, you're holding it together so that you can hold other people in their grief. And if any moment it switches over and they have to hold you now, all of a sudden it's not as professional uh, for the reason you're, you're, that you're there. There's plenty of other people who can be there. They've called you for a specific reason. And so pastors have to really kind of hold it together. And sometimes that means that I, I like ugly cry before the service. Sometimes I ugly cry when I get to my car at the hospital. Sometimes I ugly cry when I'm one of the last people in the room as the body is taken out at the end of a funeral service. There's always a time that I, I know that I, I have to allow myself to eventually feel what I'm feeling and not just over-intellectualize it. Or not just say, well, they're in heaven one day, I'll see them again. And I'll tell you, as I think about the funerals I've done, I, I often think about sort of, sort of some of the dialogue that happens in this story today. How many times I had done funerals, particularly my grandparents' and my great-grandparents' funerals, and I told my family, I literally read my, I was going through and reading their, their funeral sermons that I preached over a decade ago, <laughs> and reading it and going, wow, I literally told my family not to cry because one day they would see them in heaven again. When I read that line in the sermon this last week, I was like, whoa, I, I told them not to cry? That's what I was telling myself, and that's what I was telling them. Such a terrible prescription. It was more of a description of what I was going through. I realize now that, that every funeral I do, I invite people to cry. I invite people to become angry. I invite people to feel the full range of their emotions because that is grief. That is the, what we need to allow ourselves to enter into in every full way, and that is exactly what we see playing out in this story today. A lot of times when I sit with people as they're entering from this life into the land of our ancestors, I, I sit with them and I, and I don't often have words. And so I'll say, can I sing to you? And the most common song that I always sing to folks who identify as Christians is, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Many times as, as people were in their final days or moments 
I would hold their hand and I would sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, for the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, I would sing. And in our story today, Mary and Martha are turning their eyes upon Jesus, asking for Jesus to come in the midst of their wilderness time. Their brother is dying. And they just want Jesus to show up and do something. They're turning their eyes upon Jesus and asking him to do something because Lazarus is turning his eyes upon Jesus and perhaps is entering into his new realm of glory, into the realm of our ancestors, and they are afraid. It's interesting that this story, that this family unit is a three adult children, all single, living together. Unorthodox. Unorthodox for the time. Three adult children living together in a home, not married, no kids. But guess what? These are some of the people that Jesus was closest with. <laughs> I think I love the way that Jesus, all throughout Scripture, uh, redefines what family is and affirms these different ideas and understandings of family. And I, I can't help but wonder if it's because Jesus himself grew up in a single family home. We know Joseph was on the scene early on in Jesus' birth, but we do not see anything or hear anything of Jesus or Joseph throughout most of Jesus' life and definitely not at the moment of the cross. I wonder if Jesus really appreciated the family units that were unique. Another interesting thing to think about is that when Jesus was talking to his followers, he said, for following me, a lot of your family will disown you, and you will have to choose to make a new family, your chosen families, amongst the other followers of Christ, inviting them to a different way to understand family that would have been understood at the time. I think many of us can identify with that as we have experienced rejections in our own faith journey for the ways in which we believe or embody our faith from our families. It's interesting, in Matthew 19, 12, Jesus makes a statement. He says, some of you are born as eunuchs, meaning you have no reproductive parts or parts for other activities. Some have been made eunuchs by others and choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone who cannot accept this uh, let, let anyone who accepts this who can. It's interesting. Jesus kind of creates this space where the very first convert we see in the book of Acts is, ends up being a eunuch. Someone who would have been told, because you can't reproduce, you are not welcomed in the family of God. And Jesus goes and makes the way for him in many ways. Jesus is saying here, listen, for those of you who choose to, to be celibate or to not have families or to choose to not fit into the norms, guess what? There is room for you. And for those who can accept this, embrace this reality. I think that Jesus is always doing a really beautiful job at redefining and defining what it is that looks like a healthy way to live in this world and a healthy way to relate with one another. And in today, as, as he addresses the concerns of Mary and Martha who live in this sort of unorthodox family unit and perhaps had much to grieve because of the, the hopes that maybe never came true for them or the, the hopes the, that 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 quickly slipped away. Who knows why they were single and why the three of them were together, but I imagine that they were thick as thieves. I imagine 
uh, in my head, in some ways, in my creative liberties, that sometimes in the foster care and adoptive system, they, they try to keep the kids together because they don't have any other family, and that's all that they have, and they don't want to separate them because they've learned to lean and depend on each other in such a deep way. Usually the old is taking care of the others, no matter what the age difference is. I can't help but wonder if Mary and Martha and Lazarus had this deep connection because they was them against the world. And in this moment, they're afraid they're going to lose Lazarus. Death, perhaps, I think, feels like the most final of losses, doesn't it? There are so many different types of losses and things that we can grieve and be sad about. But grief of, of, a, of a loved one seems like so final. There is truly no grief like death. But I, I also don't want to just uh, say that the only form of grief is death. Because I think sometimes the way we talk about grief is that it can only feel grief over death. And reality is, is grief happens in micro ways and in macro ways in so many places in between. Death, in, in reality, happens on many different fronts for us. The deaths of dreams and hopes, the deaths of loved ones, divorces and breakups and severances of families and friends, that deep love and connection has been created in history. Grief over caring for an aging family member and the way you watch them change in front of your very eyes. Grief, grief of, of losing your, your vitality and health that you once knew and having to re reckon with life differently now. Loss and grief over not living close to family and friends. The loss of a job, the loss of delaying weddings, which we've seen throughout this whole pandemic and it not being what people hoped or dreamed, but even this, births and funerals that seem lonely and minimal. Not at all how you ever had imagined those things playing out. The loss of precious educational opportunities and graduations and dances and first years of colleges that were just totally deflated during this pandemic. The loss of faith communities and friendships when you choose to believe something different and you find yourself abandoned and no longer fitting at home and perhaps you find yourselves in the pews or wherever you sit at home today grateful for this place where you come as a refugee of faith but also grieved that you can't be where it was so familiar and you never thought you would be asked to leave. Grief over the loss of certain beliefs and the uncertainty of what to believe now. Grief over the scarce quality of time that I feel that I'm feeling this year that I have left with my grandma. And to think how much time I lost this year because I wasn't able to see her as much. Grief. We all carry it. I could probably pop around this room and we could all see something we're grieving this year or we've grieved at, some, grieved at some point in our lives. What do we do with it? And what do we do when we ask Jesus to come and Jesus doesn't seem to deliver on what we're asking? How do we hold that disappointment and the frustration maybe we hold with Jesus? Well, let's look at how Mary and Martha engage it. When Jesus heard about this, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end to death. No, it happened for the glory of God to be received. So although Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for two more days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But the disciples said, why would we go back there? They tried to kill you. That doesn't sound like a very good idea. You're not really thinking level-headed here. And then it says in verse 17, skipping ahead, when Jesus arrived in Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had been dead for four days. Let's do some math here, okay? I am not good at math at all, period. Not my thing. Uh, not my it's Math, spelling, not my thing. Talking, history, my thing, okay? So for those of you who are math people and spelling people and you love correcting me, I'm grateful for you, right? Just do it gently, please. I have a small ego sometimes. 
reality is, is in this very moment, the math problem adds up that they send a messenger when he's sick, right? It would have taken a day to get to him, scholars would suggest. It takes a day to get to him where he was. Remember, uh, everything is not on a car. You're, going, you're getting on a horse or a donkey, right? It's 20 miles where he was, if you look back in the passage right before this where Jesus was currently located. 20 miles to get there, one day's journey. Jesus waits two more days. How many days are we at now? I need help here, remember? Okay, three days, right? We're at three days. And then finally Jesus is like, okay, let's go. And they're like, seriously, we're going to get killed. And he's like, all right, well, let's do this thing. One more day, right? 20 more miles to, for Jesus nugget there. He arrives four days later, right? Je- Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Even if Jesus had left the moment the messenger arrived on day one, he wouldn't have gotten to Lazarus in time. Lazarus most likely died the moment he got on the horse to head to Jesus. Wouldn't have gotten there in time. Perhaps Jesus delayed his arrival because he thought he should let the people simmer a little bit before he came back into town again, and otherwise he'd be dead next, and it wasn't his time yet. Or perhaps Jesus wanted them to sit in their grief in some way. Perhaps, or maybe, perhaps it's none of those things. It was common Jewish belief that the soul of a person hung out in the vicinity of the body after it passed away. And it would wait for three days, and after the third day, it would depart from the body. It would depart from the body and go to the realm of our ancestors. The realm of our ancestors is a reference in the African tradition to refer to eternity. If you're like, why does it keep saying that? I think there's some beauty in this because some of these ideas are interesting because on the on the one year anniversary then after the body had sat in the tomb that long and the soul had long departed and the body had begun to decompose they would take the bones and they would place them in a limestone burial box they didn't have a bunch of gravestones and things like we do now and they would place that usually in some place where all the other ancestors were placed within a family unit i wonder if jesus delayed because of the ideas in jewish belief that the soul would return you know, you're wondering well why why do they think the soul might return think about this for a moment Interesting connections. If you, some people go into comas, don't they? Especially if they don't get treated for certain things. And there's not antibiotics and all the things we have accessible to. They would think that person's dead. And then all of a sudden, a few days later, they would wake up. And they would think, this person just rise from the dead. Their soul came back into their body. And so there was this superstition. There was this idea that was also just the way they understood things at the time. And so the belief was that the body, that the spirit would hover... So perhaps Jesus delayed and waited because of that. I don't know. I don't know why Jesus delayed and waited, but what I do know is when he shows up, no one's happy about his delay. In verse 20, it says, When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, somebody went over to Martha's house and said, Guess what? Guess who's coming? Guess who's finally here? She went in to meet him, but it says, Mary, she stayed in the house. What an interesting role reversal. When Mary and Martha first meet Jesus, when Mary and Martha first meet Jesus, what's the scenario that plays out? Martha's in the kitchen getting food ready and dinner, and she's cleaning a little bit. And who's, where's Mary? Mary's at the feet of Jesus, soaking up everything she can. She's so excited. And then Martha gets scolded for being too busy. He's like, you can do all that anytime. Just come in here and hang out with me while you have this moment. But then also, we know Mary is the one, this, this passage tells us at the beginning, Mary is the one who comes into the room when Jesus is having a meal with the Pharisees and anoints the feet of Jesus amongst these religious men who would have hated her and despised her. She comes to Jesus, pouring out oil on his feet, 
begging him for grace and mercy. But in this story, in this moment, Mary is not the first one to come to Jesus anymore. She's staying in the house. She's not ready to come out and see Jesus yet. Her brother's been dead for four days. And Martha, the one who had been so busy before, not so busy now. And she comes to Jesus and she greets him and she asks him, where he was, why he wasn't there. Mary is still inside, though. She's not with her sister. This week I got a call from a woman um, whose 11-year-old son came out to her. She, she didn't know what to do with this. Um, she called, and the reason she called was she was referred to me because she wanted to know what is the biblical case for homosexuality being okay because she was just too deep in thought to be able to get past this. She said, this week, my son came out to me and told me that he, she thought he was bisexual, I should say, actually. She said, when he told me, I shut down. She said, I went quiet, I went stiff. She stayed in the house. I felt the full range of emotions, she said. I, I, I went from, from how are my parents going to react to this news when they find out to, to how will people treat him in school and is he going to get bullied and, and how will people treat him differently she said, then when he asked me if he could have a shirt with a rainbow flag on it, she said, I didn't even know what to do with that. She said, I just stood there even more dumbfounded. She said, then I felt proud of him that at 11 years old, he could have the courage to come to me and tell me this. Then she said, then I went through denial, and I decided that, that this just was no way this was possible. He's 11 years old. How would an 11-year-old know this? There's just no way this could be. He's just confused. This will pass. She said, then... She went to the scary thoughts of, of wondering what this would mean for them and their family and if he would ever marry and if she would ever have grandkids from him in the way she had imagined. She said, and then after she went through all these emotions, she said, then I just sat there and I thought, yeah, but what does the Bible say? I was taught this was wrong, that this can't be right. I don't want my child to go to hell. I don't want him to go down the wrong choice and make the wrong mistakes. And she began to talk about that with a friend, and that friend referred her to me. And when I was talking with her on the phone, I, we, after she talked about this for quite a while, I just told her, I said, I want you to do something. I said, you're over-intellectualizing this experience. I said, I could give you the whole biblical case for why this is okay. But I said, if the reality is, is this, is, this is something that requires more of you than just your mind. I said, we can talk about this, but what I want to invite you to do is I want you to check in with your emotions. I want you to check in with your body. What are your emotions? What is your body? What does science even say? I said, and, and I want you to ask yourself, how do you feel about it? What do you think about it? What does your body think about it? I said, because you can over-intellectualize this till the cows come home, but your child will know that it's only in your intellect, not in your heart. I could hear her deflate on the other side of the phone with tears, with frustration, but also with peace. I told her, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve that maybe your son's future won't look exactly like you had anticipated. It's okay to grieve that your relationship with your parents might change because of this. It's okay to grieve that you're sad of how other people will treat him. And it's okay to grieve that you didn't react the way you wanted to and hoped you would when he told you. 
and it's okay to grieve that you were upset when he told you he was afraid to tell you because he wasn't sure how you would react. Feel it. Sit in it. Grieve it. Because the only way that you'll get to the other side of it is to do it. Martha in this story reacts one way and Mary reacts another. Neither is wrong. Both are exactly where they need to be and where they are in their grief process. They're trying to figure it out. Mary in this story, she just needs to be left alone. She needs to sit with her grief. She needs to to sit with her pain. She needs to sit with her sorrow. She needs to sit with her anger and disappointment that perhaps she has towards Jesus. So many of us have experienced losses in different ways. And reality is, is it's okay sometimes to admit, I'm angry with God. I'm ticked. I'm ticked you, you didn't take care of this the way that I had hoped. And there's others of us like Mary who run to the feet of Jesus in a unique way now or Martha in this story. And we ask Jesus this question in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. This mom I talked to on the phone, she was running through all the what-ifs, all the grief, all the sadness, all the sorrow, all the pain. But also, I think this is the normal stage of grief, isn't it? All the what-ifs that run through our minds. The, the what-if they had required, uh, 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 the, the, the what-if if, um, sorry, the what-if of, of, of if, I had been, if, if I had been quicker to forgive, what if I had seen the signs? What if God had healed them? What if I had prayed harder? What if I hadn't gotten married so young, so old, so quickly? What if I had bit my tongue or opened my mouth? What if I hadn't have come out so soon? Or what if I never came out at all? What if I had only been accepted? If only, if only God didn't make me this way. Whatever the if only is for you, this is what we do in grief. We run through the long list of the if-onlys. It's exactly what Martha and Mary are doing. If only, Jesus, you had been there. When I worked at Northwestern Memorial Hospital as a chaplain, I remember getting a call in the middle of the night. It's a man who had passed away. They paged me and informed me that his wife was not there. She had gone home for the first night and many nights to sleep on her own. They told me that she, they had called her and she was on her way. I went and I sat in the room with him, or what was left of him, and sat in the room and watched him, breathless, but then she came into the room, full of breath, heavy breathing. She, she entered into the room like almost, I could see in her eyes that she thought, if I could just stand in the doorway, his eyes will open, he will take a breath, he will wake up. She walked in the room and he didn't. She threw her purse down on the ground and just buried her head in his chest and she began to yell, if only, if only. She yelled that on repeat like a scratched CD that we would put in those little headset things on our heads when we were kids. If only. And then finally she, she lifted her head up And she looked at me in the eyes, finally seeing that someone else was in the room with her. She said, if only I hadn't gone home to sleep in my bed tonight, I could have been here to call for help when he needed it. And he'd still be here. 
And then she went through another long list. If only we had taken the doctor's advice and I had made him walk every day, he would be healthier. If, if only, if only, if only, I can't remember all the if onlys she went through. And after a large exhale and inhale, she said, inhale, she said, but I will see him again. She began to sit there and share about her faith, listing all of the what-ifs and all of the, uh, the, the what-onlys and, and, and how she had hoped for things to play out, and then going back to her faith and how she'd see him again, and then going back to the what-ifs, this cycle over and over again we sat. And eventually when she ran out of things to say, I could, she, I could just see her, she just kept staring at him. The nurses started lingering outside of the room, and I knew by their looks that I needed to enforce hospital policy. It was time for his body to be moved out of the room and for them to get the room ready for the next patient. But I could tell in her eyes she needed someone to tell her it was okay to walk out of the room. It was okay to leave. I could tell that if she got up and walked out, she would have felt bad about it. One of the number one things I've come to see in pastoral ministry is it's hard for people to walk away. They need someone to tell them it's okay. So I looked at her and I said, why don't we tell him goodbye for now? And would you like me to sing a prayer over him one more time? And so we both grabbed his hands and I sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. For the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so Jesus, while holding Martha's grief, he reminds her that she too will see him again. And after doing all this, Martha goes back home to Mary. Jesus goes to the tomb, and Martha tells Mary, Jesus is here, and he would like to see you. So Mary decides she is ready to finally see Jesus. And so she goes to Jesus and finally finds him, and the passage says that when Mary saw Jesus, she says, she fell at his feet, it says, again. Fell at his feet again. Lord, if only you had been here, she says, my brother would not have died. And now, Mary is ready to go through the what-if-only stage of her grief. When Jesus saw her weeping, the other people wailing with her, and deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked, and he began to weep. Their pain causes Jesus', Jesus pain. They have experienced pain. And you know, the reality is, is even if Jesus knew, I'm going to raise him from the dead, there are many times in my life when I know somebody will see someone again or when I know that right now this pain and this grief for them is terrible and it's crippling, but I also know they're going to get better. The grief going away, no, it may all, for some grief it may always be there. But the intervals of time between tears may grow. But nonetheless, even though I know things will get better, I still cry. My heart still breaks for them. And so in this moment, even though Jesus knows things will get better, his heart still breaks to see the grief and pain of those around him. 
But I can't help but wonder if Jesus, as he sees the tears of those around him, crying over the loss of Lazarus, I can't help but wonder if he was beginning to think about the pain and the sorrow that would become these folks again when he would die. As we draw near to Good Friday and the death of Christ and to remember the pain of the cross, I can't help but stop and wonder if Jesus in this very moment as he stood all around all these people crying and thought, I'm going to raise him again, but I too will cause them pain by my own death. And sure, I will rise again, but boy does this pain seem unbearable upon these people. In verse 43, Jesus then shouts, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound by grave claws, his face wrapped in a head cloth. Jesus told him, unwrap him, let him go. Literally wrapped up like a mummy Easter bunny, he comes out and they tell him, unwrap him like you're doing some teepeeing. Lazarus emerges, he's bound, but he's alive. Lazarus, he can't push the stone away by himself, he needs help because he's bound. Lazarus, he can't unbind himself because his arms are tightly to his body because it was a good teepee job. Others have to assist. Lazarus has to be willing to come out and to be unbound. What I love about this whole story is that there, it really highlights the Jewish custom of mourning called Shabbat. Seven days of, of grief and mourning after the death of a loved one. And the grief never happens in isolation, it seems. If you read in the beginning of this story, it says there were lots of people that were around Mary and Martha's house. Mary wasn't ready to see Jesus yet. But there were people who were there with her, whether they were making food or just sitting in silence or they were cleaning busy like Martha might have done. She's not grieving in silence. And then when Jesus and Mary finally meet at the tomb, guess what? There's also still all these people around grieving together. Grieving happened in community. But more than that, the, the, the pains of grief, you can't unravel it on yourself. You can't move the stone on your own. Jesus could have called Lazarus out of there completely unbound by all of the teepee job. And he, and he also probably could have touched like a Harry Potter scene and moved the rock from there and all of a sudden it would have been open like a secret door. I just watched all the Harry Potter for the first time. It's kind of in my head now. I know, everyone's so excited. I have so many illustrations. You just can't wait to the next series. <laughs> I don't know, but, but what happened in this story that's really beautiful is that Jesus didn't do any of that. Instead, in community, they came around one another. And they supported each other in the grief and they held each other, but also they helped unbind each other from the grief that could have held them if they just grieved alone. Risen but bound, emerging alive but bound. Is that not the story of many of our grief? Those who've passed on to the land of our ancestors and have turned their eyes upon Jesus and cry no more, but yet we are still here bound and alive in our grief. Some of us, I think, need this morning to be invited. We need to be invited to grieve in community, to hold each other's pain, opening the sealed doors and helping unwrap old grave clothes so that we can live in this world not so bound. Some of us have been taught not to trust our feelings or our doubts, but to just trust what the pastor says or just to trust the Bible or just to trust God. But reality is, is I'm inviting you this morning to also trust yourselves. As I did the woman whose child came out of the closet this week and she wrestled, I, I didn't just tell her, trust the Bible, trust God, but I invited her to trust herself. For she's filled with the same spirit made of the same dust as I and the same ones who've written the word that we study today. And she can trust herself. She can trust her body and her heart and her emotions to guide her as well.
watched uh, the movie Inside Out for the first time, and I'll invite the worship team to come as we land this plane. The movie Inside Out was kind of interesting. The whole, how many of you have seen the movie Inside Out? Okay, great. How about those of you at home? Could you raise your hand for me? Just kidding, I can't see you. The main character in this story is named Riley, and she needed space to feel sad, angry, all the wide range of her emotions. And in this story, the, the crux of it was is that she was grieving a ton of loss. They had moved halfway across the country. She wasn't near her friends anymore. She didn't get to do her hobby of skating. Her friends were making new friends. She wasn't. Her parents, the relationship was different. It was changing, and she could see the tension that existed. She had so much loss and change. She was grieving. She was in pain. And the whole crux of the story, really, in the end, is this. Trigger warning if you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> she cannot pretend to just be happy like her mom told her to do so that her dad would be okay with this big move. She needed to be able to own the fact and she needed to be able to tell her parents honestly and herself that this move changed a lot for her. That she was in pain, that she was in grief, that she was sad and she was angry. And at the end of this movie, the only reason she was able to get joy again in this story was because she was able to acknowledge that she was sad she was angry. She was grieving. Grief is hard, church. It comes in ways, not in steps. It requires us to depend on others and to be vulnerable with others. It requires us to take the full range of emotions, to check in with our mind and our body, to check in with others in community. It requires us to allow our bodies to make the calls while not always allowing the intellect to make the calls. It asks us to let go while also still holding on. It requires us to live with the what-ifs while not allowing the what-ifs to define the rest of our lives. It requires us to turn our eyes towards Jesus, some of us right away, and other of us while we wait in the house for a little bit until we're ready to look in the eyes of Jesus again. It requires us to let go while also cherishing the things of earth as they grow strangely dim in our hearts, our minds, and in the light of God's grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. For the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.